Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridget. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, we're so glad you could join us again. And uh, today we're going to be talking to a man that many pro-life activists will recognize immediately, because if you're anything like me and you've had to study a lot of different pro-life arguments and a lot of different methods of debating uh, the pro-choice public, one name will have cropped up more than most, and that would be Dr. Francis J. Beckwith, who's quite an eminent and well-known pro-life philosopher. He currently works at Baylor University, and he's uh, the author of many, many very valuable books on these issues, such as uh, 2007's Defending Life, A Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion Choice. Uh, He also wrote uh, Politically Correct Death. Uh, the Abortion Controversy, 25 Years After Roe v. Wade. He wrote a brilliant book with Greg Coco, uh, Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Mid-Air. So, as you know on this show, we talk to a lot of uh, prominent culture warriors, and we all also make a point of talking to the academics and the philosophers who put forward the brilliant arguments that uh, activists then take and, and modify uh, to use on the streets when they're debating everyday people. And uh, Dr. Francis J. Beckwith, Dr. Robert P. George, Scott Klusendorf, these are all uh, impressive apologists who have contributed arguments and, and philosophy of enormous value to the pro-life movement. So I was, I was very thrilled when, when Dr. Beckwith agreed to come on and discuss with me a pro-life apologetics for the 21st century and just sort of discuss where we are in this cultural moment and how we can most effectively use uh, philosophy in the pro-life cause. So uh, here is my conversation with Dr. Francis Beckwith. My first question is that in today's culture, uh, which are the most effective pro-life arguments in your mind to use? It's a good question. Um, you know, you're asking a professor, so um, <laughs> I, I'll give you two. I'll give you two different types of answers. Uh, I think, in terms of the popular culture, I think the strongest arguments are the the, the arguments that appeal to just the biology of human development, right? Uh, or embryology. I mean, it, it sort of startles people when you tell them that, especially pro-lifers who are really conversant and aware of the. Uh, of the facts of fetal development, but what they don't realize is that a lot of people just are unacquainted uh, with those facts. And it turns out that I believe that in the past 15, 20 years, the slow movement that we've seen uh, in North American culture toward a more receptive understanding of the pro-life position, I think is a consequence of the technology that has allowed us to peer into the womb and to see that development. Uh, so I do think in terms of popular culture, I think just the facts on the ground and people being aware of those facts uh, have been instrumental in, in helping people to become more pro-life. I also think in terms of popular culture, uh, the, the fact that we have, I think with the Internet today, especially the past, again, the past decade and a half, two decades, people now can access that information much more easily than they could, let's say, uh, in the 1980s or 70s. Now, in terms of the areas in which I write uh, among academics, uh, I think the strongest arguments for the pro-life position are those that appeal to the essential nature 
of the unborn child, that is, that the unborn child and his future self, that is, the self that is born and develops and becomes an infant and adolescent and adult and so forth, is the same being. And that the distinctions that people try to make, especially those that support abortion rights, between the unborn and the born based on their abilities or present capacities, I think ultimately break down. So, I, you know, I think there, you've got two different types of arguments, uh, but I think in terms of the popular culture, I think it's the fact that people just are more aware today of fetal development. When we're talking about uh, today's culture, which is, uh, you know, on the ground, everyday people, the the illiteracy rate is, is nearing 42% in terms of, uh, of people who can be conversant in language above, I believe the polling said, the sixth grade. Uh, and a lot of people are, are sort of adopting this de facto utilitarianism and relativism, whether they realize it or not. To what extent is, is, is philosophy uh, losing its sharp edge in terms of, of a tool that we can use on our behalf? Mm. It's a good question. I mean, I, you know, utilitarianism and relativism are points of view. Uh, they're not the, obviously, the essence of philosophy. Um, there are a lot of us philosophers, some of whom aren't even pro-life, who reject both relativism and utilitarianism. And I do think, for that reason, uh, I encourage people that are pro-life and, and other you know, like-minded folks that they employ some of the critiques against utilitarianism and relativism that are used by people that you know, may not be pro-life. So, uh, you know, f- for example, uh, I, I use this example in class to my students when we talk about um, me- I, class I teach in medical ethics at Baylor. I, I, I explain to them why I think the uh, the deliverance of the social sciences are not particularly uh, helpful when we're trying to figure out claims. So, for example, I, I ask them, what if, you, what if the, the social science data had, tells us that people that uh, are missing a limb are happier in general? Right. So, you know, so, you know and, and actually, I wouldn't even doubt that. As I, I would predict that that's probably true. And, and, and the reason is that people that, this is at least my speculation, the reason why people may, who may have suffered a, uh, some sort of handicap as a consequence of an injury, you know, losing a limb, or maybe they were born that way, it was a congenital uh, problem, uh, they learn to adapt and handle adversity better. And also, a lot of very healthy people who have all their limbs are depressed and, and, and you know, don't get along well with life and so forth. If, if it turned out that, in general, people who are missing at least one limb were happier than people that had all four limbs, it would not justify a parent upon birth intentionally removing one of the limbs or asking a surgeon to do it. Uh, and, and, I, and my students kind of giggle about this, and I say, look... The limits here, the problem is, is that what you're doing is by relying on that kind of, kind of utilitarian calculus, like in general people are happier, blah, 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 even if they suffer this sort of injury, mm-hmm. is that you're, ignore, you're totally ignoring what is it that perfects the human being and makes him or her a whole person in the sense that uh, our parts are are in fact important aspects of ourselves that, if functioning properly, uh, 
are part of our perfection or perfection that as a tech, it's a technical philosophical term. It just means our wholeness. And so I, I do think that we can use, you know, the sorts of arguments that people have offered, um, uh, outside of the pro-life context to show the failure of something like utilitarianism. Another example that I use, uh, and especially today with all the, the, the protests about uh, racial unrest and prejudice, I, I, I ask my students, well, what if, what if it were discovered that, in fact, um, let's say, uh, p- putting a person who is, in fact, innocent in prison because it will actually subdue uh, social unrest. Would that be justified? And, of course, they all say, no, it, it wouldn't be justified at all. And I say, well, wait a second. Uh, for the arguments that we've been talking about for abortion, you use utilitarian arguments all the time. Why isn't it okay to put an innocent person in prison if, right. in fact, it would lead to, you know, supposedly the greater good for the greater number. And so they begin to understand that there are, in fact, uh, fundamental truths of morality that we shouldn't compromise, even if it turns out that, you know, in, in, in the short run, we would be, quote-unquote, better off. What do you do in a culture that doesn't understand terms that you're using like morality? And it's interesting that you brought up the example of, uh, of amputating some, a healthy person's limbs. There was an article here in Canada in the National Post a little while ago about the, uh, quote, transabled community. This is people who, who feel like they want to get rid of one of their limbs. They have a strong desire to do it. They are comparing, uh, you know, their sort of a struggle for acceptance as they want to be with the transgender community. And the newspaper article could not, or the, the columnist who was writing this, I should say, could not come up with a single coherent argument against what they were asking yeah. for, although he felt profoundly uncomfortable with it because he had already accepted, of course, the premises of the transgender community, and he would already accepted the premises of some people that said, I can use physical surgery to, to turn myself into the person I want to be. And once he accepted those premises, he realized that regardless of how profoundly uncomfortable he was with yeah. the next logical step in that direction, he was left unable to actually rebut any of the requests that they were making. So what would you say to that? Yeah, that, that's very, it's very difficult as the culture becomes uh, or shifts in a particular direction. It is very difficult, especially when people uh, accept, as you, as you use the term premises, that, uh, that, they, that they don't feel that they should reject. So uh, I, think, I think the one thing that we have to realize about ethics or morality is that it's not like mathematics. It's not something that, uh, you know, something that, you know, we can sort of point towards and, and, and sort of show in a, in, a, in a deductive manner how, in fact, you know, sub, you know we draw a particular conclusion. Uh, morality is deeply embedded in culture, which means that when we have these deep, deep disagreements, there is no silver bullet. <laughs> there is no magic pill. You, you can't simply, you know, uh, through, let's say, one particular type of quick argument, refute someone's entire worldview. I think what you have to do, it, 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 you know, you almost have to be Socratic about it. That is, uh, so the person that says, uh, um, you know, that, uh, that they have these, you know, f- feelings or a sense that they are, that 
that one of their limbs or all of them are are sort of alien and not part of themselves. You know, my question, and I would raise this, if, for example, in the classroom, I would ask my the student, let's say, who who defended this, on what grounds could you say that any subjective sense of oneself is mistaken? Right. In other words, to throw it back on them and to raise the question of, you know, supposing, and, and I here I would use, let's say, issues that are of a, of a particular concern to my students, like something like racism or, or discrimination against homosexuals. Well, what if, what if people like had this sense of themselves that they, that they simply can't unthink, you know, uh, on what grounds could you say they're mistaken? So the problem is, I think, I think the way that um, uh, we can sort of unravel this is, is first to sort of come up with counterexamples uh, to sort of draw people out. But at the end of the day, I mean, you, 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 there's really no, look, people can, will in fact hold to views, uh, you know, regardless of the counterexamples, because as you point out in the, the, the writer you, you mentioned, he, he understands the power of the counterexamples, but in order to, uh, you know, to, to accommodate those counterexamples, what does he ask? He has to then abandon the premises that he's accepted that allow him to believe all these other things that are right. politically correct. So he's not going, he's going to just simply say, simply swallow the counterexamples, right? <laughs> and, and, and let it be. So, yeah, I think that it's a very difficult thing to do, um, you know, uh, at some point, you know, arguments themselves uh, can't really extricate somebody from certain beliefs. I mean, but we can do the best that we can do. Well, right, and the title of one of your books was, was Politically Correct Death, and it applies now more than it ever has, because when we're looking at transgendered, transabled, uh, these different worldviews in which the the sort of radical view of the self allows people to... To, to mutilate themselves in different ways. At what point is this just sort of a very disturbing conclusion uh, to the total devotion uh, to the autonomy of the self? Uh, the autonomy of the self, of course, being the main argument for abortion and virtually every other thing that yourself and other Christian philosophers have been arguing against for decades. Yeah. See, I think that there, there's a paradox in the autonomy of the self. So uh, what happens is and this is here, I'm going to quote one of my friends, Lydia McGrew, who uh, is a, teaches philosophy uh, at Western Michigan University, actually part-time. But she writes an awful lot in philosophy and, and literature. And uh, what she, she's coined this phrase, choice devours itself. And, and what she means by that is that it begins with appeals to autonomy and individual choice, but inevitably what happens is that the arguments used for the autonomy and the choice prove too much, and the choice or autonomy is destroyed. So, for example, uh, euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. It begins with, well, the patient should be allowed to choose to kill himself or herself because, and the argument usually goes, because who would want to live that way? That is, you know, at the end of life, uh, when you're hooked up to... Uh, particular devices, when you're being fed and cared for by others, uh, the the argument goes, well, this is a degrading way to live. People should have the choice to get out of it, namely to kill themselves. Well, here's the problem, is that what about the person who says, 
I don't want to kill myself when I'm in that state. I think it's a violation of the beliefs that I hold that are given to me by my sovereign creator. Mm-hmm. Now what happens is that once you've already put in place the premise that no person would want to live that way, you've essentially said the person who does want to live that way is irrational. Right. If he or she is irrational, then they're not truly acting autonomously. Therefore, the state can order that person killed, and they're not, you're not violating their autonomy. See how it works? And, mm-hmm. and also, the other, let's look at something like, let's say, right here in the United States, we, we had a, a Supreme Court case in 1967 uh, called Griswold, Connecticut, or excuse me, 1965. And in Griswold, uh, the Supreme Court said that there was a right for contraception, that is, that, it, that the state could not restrict or ban the purchasing or using of contraceptive devices and methods. Well, fair enough. Uh, but what happens is uh, now we have shifted to, uh, the, I have a right to choose this, to if I'm not given the resources to choose it, my rights are violated. Well, now that means that people, let's say, who may have a conscience objection to, using contra- to, to paying for contraception, let's say, out of their own pocket, not just out of tax dollars. Uh, in the United States, we have Obamacare, which um, it's a complicated uh, law, but it involves uh, in, it, employers uh, uh, paying for insurance for their employees, which means directly coming out of their pocket. Right. It doesn't come out of a general fund. Uh, let's say if it was just out of tax dollars. So, so now you have the government in the position of directly coercing individual, let's say, family-owned small businesses to pay for things directly that they cannot, that they feel in their conscience would involve uh, moral cooperation with an evil act. And so what's happened is it got gone from uh, the state uh, cannot restrict you from choosing it to if somebody is not coerced to pay for it directly, your rights are violated. Uh, and the reason is, again, the initial arguments were, this is a very good thing. Well, if something's good and essential to your well-being, uh, then it would seem that uh, other citizens should directly uh, support it in some way. So, so I think at the end of the day, the appeal to autonomy is almost like a, a gateway drug. <laughs> that is, right. It initially gets you the sort of negative liberty, that is, the state can't interfere with you choosing it. But ultimately, the arguments for the exercise of that autonomy, namely what you're aiming at is itself good and essential to your livelihood, well-being, and dignity, will eventually require that other citizens' autonomy is violated so that you can get what you need. Right. And so ultimately, the autonomy argument, as I said, sort of is a gateway drug, but it doesn't, it can't be sustained, uh, in a, I think, in the way in which it's, it's presented today. In your years of, of dealing with pro-choice philosophers and pro-choice arguments, which are the ones that you did find the most dangerous and the most convincing? You know, I think the most, the most interesting arguments, um, I, I, there's an argument by Judith Jarvis Thompson, um, in which she concedes that the um, that the, the the fetus is a person, but she still she says abortion is still justified, uh, and she uses several different illustrations in order to make her point. One of her illustrations is this uh, argument 
uh, uh, it's called the argument from the unconscious violinist, and it it goes something like this: you are a, uh, you attend a society of music lovers uh, party. Um, you don't realize it, but you're not, you 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 were actually invited because you're you have the right kidney, right type of uh, kidney that could be used by this world-class violinist who only needs to be hooked up to you for nine months. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the question that Thompson raises is, is, do you have a right to unplug yourself from the violinist even if it results in the violinist's death? And she says, yes, of course you do. Therefore, uh, it's really not relevant whether the violinist or the fetus is a person. Uh, it's, um, you know, you no know, one has a right to use your body against your will. I find that to be a, a you know an argument that it, that that does have a little weight to it. I think there are several problems with it. Um, one problem I think is that I, I actually don't think she really concedes the pro-life view of personhood, and that sounds kind of odd because she actually says, right, I'm assuming it's a person, but I think it's she's assuming a particular view of personhood, namely. Uh, that that each of us is sort of an isolated self with no natural obligations to those closest to us. And so, for example, most people would say that uh, parents have an obligation to their children that differs from the obligations they may have to strangers' children. Or I have an obligation to my aged parents to at least provide some care for them, even if I didn't ask to be born. That is, that they consent not relevant to my obligations, and that 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 type that view of the person is one that is deeply embedded, obviously, in the biblical tradition. But it's also found across cultures. People have this kind of intuitive understanding that we have obligations to those closest to us uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, not the least of which is that it, it, that we are our identity is connected. To, to, to these people. So none of us, every one of us, uh, in a sense, thinks of ourselves in terms of how we relate to parents, children, uncles, aunts, great-grandparents. We, we see ourselves as individuals in time connected to uh, other individuals, uh, you know, family members and so forth. And so I do think that um, that Thompson's account of the human person is artificial and not real. <laughs> right. uh, also, I think she ignores the fact that uh, that I actually think that that she she assumes mistakenly that the only obligations we have are the ones we choose, and I think there are a variety of reasons to reject that. Well, and this is, is is sort of interesting to me because there have been pro-life and pro-choice arguments being made. Uh, for decades now in academia, and there have been people like yourself and Dr. Robert P. George and a handful of others who have made uh, very good pro-life arguments. To what extent has the academic community remained hostile to that line of debate? Yeah, you know, I I think it's less hostile than it was 30 years ago. Hmm. Uh, Now, it's not saying that people have, uh, that there's been a, uh, you know, a a kind of revival of, uh, or a kind of uh, change of heart on the part of large segments of the academic community. But I do think uh, that there are many, I do a lot of speaking at, at college campuses throughout the United States, in, uh, in many cases, environments that are, would be ordinarily hostile to, to my point of view. And even though they are, 
in most cases, critical of what I'm saying, I've, I, I have sensed less and less hostility over the past uh, 15 years or so. And I think, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. One, uh, I just think, as I mentioned earlier, I think the general public ha- has become much more receptive to the pro-life position, and the fact is that academics are still part of the general public. So there's that. There's also something, especially with liberalism, uh, I think liberalism can understand, liberals can understand why someone would be pro-life. That is, they, 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 if they use a kind of a liberal type of thinking on this, that is, okay, fetuses are human beings and human beings have rights. I get that. Now, I don't think, let's say if I'm liberal, uh, I don't think that fetuses are persons, but I can see how someone would believe that. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there's a greater, you know, a greater sympathy for why someone may be pro-life, right? I don't think you find that on the other issues, such as maybe gay rights, uh, euthanasia, because even in those cases, it's, it's again an appeal to sort of individual autonomy. Uh, so I think the, the liberal can see why someone could see the fetus as one of those autonomous beings that deserves respect, even though they may disagree with it. So uh, I, I do think that there, there isn't really a change of mind in the academy, although there's a greater receptivity, and also think that pro-lifers have, at least in the academic world, have come up with better arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go back to the uh, 70s, uh, the biggest, uh, the, the probably the most the, the pre- most predominant pro-life arguments were offered by uh, John Noonan, uh, a law professor at UC, and philosopher at UC Berkeley, and um, Baruch Brody, who's a professor at the Baylor College of Medicine, and those arguments were good, but they—I don't think they—they they matched uh, the sophistication of, let's say, a Michael Tooley or a Judith Jarvis Thompson. I think things have changed. I think pro-life arguments are are just much more sophisticated, and I think you know, obviously, I'm biased here. I think a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I think I think there there has been a, a, a slight change in the academy. Well, there's, that's a very interesting point, uh, especially as as you pointed all these other social issues in which there seems to be a, a distinct rigidity on the other side, uh, which leads me to uh, the question: What do conservatives do in a culture when there's nothing left to conserve anymore? <laughs> well, I still think there is something left to conserve. Um, you know, it's interesting that um, uh, that you know, no matter how badly I think a culture, let's say, decays, uh, I don't. Uh, you know, you can reach a point, obviously, in which you know it, it's so long gone there is nothing left to conserve. But I don't think we've reached that point yet. Uh, we still have, you know, you know, large numbers of people who would, who uh, embrace more traditional views. Uh, we still have, you know, our communities, our religious communities, and I do think we have to be concerned now about shoring up our religious communities. That, you know, I'm Catholic, I teach at a Baptist university, and uh, it, my institution is a wonderful institution, I'm talking about Baylor, uh, but I think it has to be prepared to protect uh, what it ha- what is it is f- in fact con- conserved up until now, and I think for that reason we have to be 
you know, have to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. And that means uh, we have to understand the legal landscape of whatever community or nation we belong to, what we can do and what we can't do. And it, that may mean, in some ways, uh, maybe focusing more on our communities in terms of moral and intellectual formation, uh, uh, you know, donating more of our resources to those communities, because at the end of the day, you're right, maybe, you know, we, we, we may have reached a point where, you know, the more wide, the wider culture is long gone, but that doesn't mean there aren't pockets within, you know, one's nation uh, or community that aren't worth preserving. So uh, I, do think, I do think that's where we may have to go. Well, Dr. Bethlett, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.